Thank you, Lord. Find a couple of places in your Bibles with me. Uh, first of all, 2 Timothy chapter 4. And we'll also look at John chapter 4. 2 Timothy 4, John 4. And again, we've been talking about finishing strong. And what started, like I said a moment ago, as, as an idea and a concept about finishing a year strong has grown in my spirit to the place where I see that this is not just something we apply to the, to the end of a year, the last few days, the last few weeks. It's something we apply to every phase and every day of our lives. But what came up in my spirit uh, a few weeks ago before we got into this, I just had you might, what you might call just a knowing from the Lord, got a sense about where we were as a family, as a congregation. And I could get a sense in my heart that some of us Started this year, 2022, is that what we're in? Yeah. Started that year, this year strong. But here we've come to the end of it. And I just had a sense there were some among us that were a little bit tired, a little bit fatigued. And the truth is, it's totally natural. You and I both, it's just a, a natural fact of life that you don't have as much energy at the end of a thing as you did at the beginning. Whatever that thing is, you, it, it's a natural fact of life that you don't have as much energy per se at the end of a journey as you had at the beginning of it. You may not have as much energy or strength at the end of a fight as you did at the beginning of a fight. And that's a natural thing. But as the Lord's been talking to us about finishing, I hear Him calling us up, not just to finish, but to finish strong, which means we're going to have to find, find out how to access some supernatural strength. It is a natural fact that you don't have as much and natural facts are one thing. Supernatural facts are another. And there is a supernatural flow of strength and energy available to us. And that's what we've been talking about accessing. You go back to the beginning of this series when we first started it, we talked about waiting on the Lord. And what does the Bible say? Wait upon the Lord and He will renew your strength. Because He's the God who does not grow weary. He's our God who does not faint. And the good news is that endless energy that He's got, the Bible says He gives power to the faint. He increases strength. To those that have no might. Is there anybody in here this morning that could use a little dose of increased strength? Well, that's what we need. If we're going to finish strong, whether we're talking about this year or the things that God's called us to in this life, we need to access some of that supernatural power, some of that supernatural strength. And one of the first places and ways we do that is in waiting upon the Lord. That has to do with our worship. That has to do with sitting still and, and you stop outputting for a minute and you just wait upon the Lord. That's not a passive waiting where you're saying, okay, God, now anytime I'm ready when you are. That's not what this waiting is about. This waiting is about looking to him and expecting from him, drawing from him. And the Bible says we draw strength from our union with him. It's what we talked about last week, that, that phone that you carry around with you everywhere you go. Well, as much as a, of a help as it is to you, most of us at least once a day need to stop using that thing and plug it in. Why? Because it draws strength from its union with the charger. Your phone draws strength, draws power from its union with that outlet. You and I need to stop. And I'd say at least once a day and start drawing some strength, some supernatural strength from our union with Christ Jesus. We went on to talk about how we draw strength from doing the will of God. And we'll look at that verse here again in just a moment. But if doing his will strengthens us, what does that tell you about doing your own will? It's got a draining effect. People who are just living for themselves, living self-centered, self-focused, flesh-focused all the time. Wake up every day with themselves on their mind. What do I want to do? Where do I want to go? Where, what do I want to accomplish? What they end up finding out is that is the most dissatisfying life there is. And it leaves you weakened. 
drained of power. But doing the will of God for our lives has a strengthening effect. It has a revitalizing effect. And you're going to see that from the words of Jesus here in just a moment. But again, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, the Bible says, beginning in verse 6, Paul writing to Timothy, he said, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have, what? Finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now, Paul's not talking about finishing one year going into another. He's talking about finishing this life going into the next life. And this is what you and I want to be able to say. We want to be able to honestly say on our last day here and our first day in eternity, I have fought a good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. But there's many people, like we've said already, if they're honest... They would not be able to say that. If they were honest before God, they'd probably have to say, I fought, but I fought poorly. Or I, I quit the race somewhere along the way. Or somewhere along the way, I lost my faith. But not us, church. Amen? Amen? What do we want to say? I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept my faith. Glory to God. Now in John chapter 4, I want to look again at the words of Jesus. This is so powerful. And I, and I keep just getting more and more and more out of it as I go back to it. In John chapter 4, in verse 6, we see that Jesus and his disciples have started a journey. And just like when you start a journey, you start a long walk. You got strength. You've got energy. But the same thing that happens to you and I after a long walk happened to Jesus after a long walk. It says in verse 6, Jacob's well was in this place, and Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. One translation says that Jesus was wearied to the point of exhaustion. This is just a, a little friendly reminder here that Jesus laid aside all his mighty weight and power and he wrapped around him the same flesh that you and I have. And he lived this life as a man, as a man anointed by God. But he didn't go through this life with some unfair advantage over you, over me. You get tired after a long walk. Here's a big revelation. Jesus does too. Why? He's got flesh. He's got flesh. He's got this body and this body has limitations. So after this long walk... Jesus sits down by this well. Why? He was tired. Is this too deep of revelation for somebody? He sat down because he was tired. He was wearied. And like that translation says, to the point of exhaustion. Come on, can I get a witness? Has anybody ever been there and or are there right now? You know what I'm talking about. You started January 1st of this year with some excitement, some pep, and here we are December, first week of December, and you might be a little wearied from the journey. Well, Jesus is experiencing some of these same things. And we've talked about it. You remember what happened. He sent the disciples away into the city to buy food. He's sitting there by himself. There's a woman from the city that comes to draw water from the well. Jesus starts a conversation with her. They go back and forth for a little bit. Jesus is endeavoring to solicit some faith out of her. He's, he's kind of dropping some breadcrumbs along the way here that trying to lead her to who he is and cause her to see him. And she ain't getting it, man. I mean, Jesus is talking to her about the well that doesn't run dry. And if you drink from it, you won't thirst. And she's like, well, that sounds good. Where is this well? I'll go draw from that. So I don't have to draw water anymore. He's talking spirit. She's hearing flesh. And it was this breakdown in communication between them until finally Jesus, by a word of knowledge, exposes some things about her past when he said, go call your husband, come here. She says, I don't have one. He said, you're right, you've, got five, you've had five and the one you're with now is not your husband. And that's when she said to him, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. <laughs> really? You picked up on that. <laughs> And she goes right into this theological debate about where people are supposed to worship. And this is what happens when people 
have a little bit of light that gets shined on their scandalous past. Have you ever noticed how quickly people want to change the subject? Let's stop talking about me and let's talk about worship. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship and we worship on this mountain. And that's when Jesus began to unfold some things to her, saying to her, uh, you don't know what you worship. And God's looking for people who will worship him in spirit and truth. And this woman actually looked back at him. It's all right here in John 4, but she said to him, well, when the Messiah comes, he'll tell us all things. In other words, when the Messiah shows up, he'll settle the argument and he'll tell you I was right. When the Messiah comes. Here's somebody who's claiming to be looking for the Messiah and has no idea who she's talking to when he's standing there right in front of her. And finally, after Jesus has been trying to drop hints and trying to draw her by soliciting faith out of her, finally he just up and says it, I who speak to you am he. Hello, my name is God. And you know the rest of the story. I mean, the, the, the blinders come off. This, this woman in an instant believes him and, and she runs into the city to, and she tells all the people there, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Christ? It's a powerful story. But don't, remember, don't, don't forget, you got to remember where it started. Jesus sat down by this well. Why? Tired. Tired. His disciples came back to him. And you see this in verse 31. John chapter 4 verse 31 says, In the meantime, his disciples urged him saying, Rabbi, eat. You need to eat something. But he said to them, I have food. The Amplified Bible says, I have nourishment that you don't know about. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? What's happening? He's talking spirit. They're hearing flesh. Same problem that woman had. Same problem people have today. He's speaking by the spirit. They're hearing in the flesh. He said, I've got food. I've got nourishment that you don't know about. And they said, has somebody brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food, my nourishment is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus said, this is what nourishes me. This is what fills me up. And you remember, we talked about this last week, asking ourselves, well, what does food do for the natural body? Well, food for this body energizes this body. When you put food in this body, it strengthens this body. Food in this body will sustain it. Food in this body can satisfy a hungry body. And what Jesus is saying is that what food does for the natural body, doing the will of God for your life will do for your spirit. Just the way food will energize you, doing the will of God will energize you. The same way food can strengthen you, doing God's will will strengthen you. The same way food will sustain you, doing the will of God has the power to sustain you. And the same way that food satisfies a hungry body, doing the will of God is the only thing that will satisfy the longing soul, that will satisfy the spirit that is hungry. And this is what people are starving for. I said, this is what people all over the world are starving for right now. They're, they're starving for satisfaction. They're starving for contentment. So they look for it in this, and they look for it in that, and they look for it in them, and they look for it in him, and they look for it in her, and they look for it in the money, and they look for it in the bottle, and they look for it everywhere. And when they can't find it, after they've tried and they've tried and they've tried, and they still can't get no satisfaction, you know what they arrive at? The conclusion is, it's not out there. The conclusion they come to is, it's impossible to find it. I've looked. But Jesus is saying, no, it's not impossible to find it. You just got to know where to look. And satisfaction will never be found in a self-centered life. Satisfaction will never be found in trying to satisfy this flesh 
and all its impulses and all its cravings and all its desires. And when you feed it, feed it, feed it, feed it, you come to the end and you think, I'm still as hungry as I was when I started. That's because you're looking in the wrong place for the satisfaction. The satisfaction is found in doing, not your will, his. And there's something else too. What did he say? My food is to do his will and to finish, to finish his work. And I submit to you this morning that this, this thought right here is what Jesus woke up with every day of his life to do the will of God and to finish the work. And if you go back to really one of the only things we know about Jesus before he's launched into his ministry, we see him as a 12 year old. You remember this? They had gone to the temple and I guess the whole family, the whole, the whole crew left and maybe Mary and Joseph thought he was somewhere in the group. But like three days later, she looks at Joseph and says, I thought you had him. And he looks at her and says, no, I thought you had him. And they discovered they have lost the son of God. And so they run back and they find him where? In the temple. And Mary, I mean, what a mom, right? Why have you done this to me? (laughs) And what did Jesus say to her? Did you not know that I had to be about my, my father's business, my father's work. In meditating on some of these things, even as recent as last night, it hit me again. Here he is, 12 years old, getting a glimpse of the job. Getting a glimpse of the job assignment and the work that he'd been given to do from his father. And the thought that occurred to me right after that was my son's 12. And so we sat down on the couch last night as a family. Sarah was reading to the kids. I have a new book we got that, that, that was an in-depth look at the Christmas story and the nativity. And we're talking, the book was talking about how God calls families. and It was talking about the family of Jesus. And I took that opportunity and I looked at my son, Justice. And I said, I said, you know something, buddy? Jesus was your age when he began to get a glimpse of the job. Our children are not too early, or they're not too young. It's not too early right now. For them to begin to get a sense of what God has called and created them to do. It's not too early. Do you hear me, church? It's not too early. And one of the things we've talked to our children's ministers about and will continue to in the coming year is what we want happening in that children's ministry is that those kids leave with an encounter in the presence of God. And don't you be surprised when your 8, 10, 12-year-old comes home one Sunday afternoon and says, this is what God told me I'm going to do with my life. This is what God's called me to do, what He's called me to be. And don't you dare laugh it off. Don't minimize it. Listen to it. There's a story in my family. I was somewhere under the age of 10 and we were sitting at dinner one night at the house. And I guess the way mom and dad tell it is it was kind of quiet at dinner. Everybody's just eating. And out of nowhere, I said, when Papa sits down, I'll stand and preach. As an eight-year-old, 10-year-old. And then just went back to whatever we were eating. And mom and dad, when they tell the story, they said there was kind of a holy hush that just settled in right there at the table. There was a weightiness, they said, about it. When Papa sits down, I'll stand and preach. Now, Papa, my Papa, been in ministry my entire life and for years before that, pushing 60 years now in ministry. And uh, that's what I grew up watching and witnessing. And the man turns 86 this week, y'all. And he ain't sat down yet. So I don't think there's any waiting on him. But what I'm trying to tell you is that there was a sense and a glimpse of what the job was. 
even from a young age. Your children are not too young. Our children are not too young to begin getting a glimpse of what God's called them to. And when we as their parents and, and the Lord begins telling it to them, we work with that, we cooperate that, our job then becomes about fueling it, feeding that fire. Because we want them waking up every day of their lives with the same thing on their minds that was on Jesus' mind. I got a job to do. Do you realize that? Do you realize you have just as much a heavenly calling on your life that Jesus had on his? And if he was all about doing the will of God, what should we be all about? Doing the will of God. If he was about finishing the work, what should your life be about? Finishing the work. Waking up every day with that on your mind, that in your heart. I've got a job to do. I've got something to accomplish for the kingdom of God. And this finishing should be on your mind. Now, here's the question. We talked a little bit about this last week. And it's the question I've been asking myself and asking the Lord for a few weeks now. Jesus, how'd you do it? When you think about his life and how relatively short it was on earth, the question should be, how'd you get so much done in such little time? Because by the time he was 30 years old, he's stepping into his ministry. And then from there to the cross was really only about three years, three and a half years. And yet it was enough time to not only change the world he lived in, but change the world we're living in. To have such a lasting and eternal impact that you and I, along with millions and millions and millions of other people right now today, are still talking about it. How'd you do that, Jesus? How did you make such an impact in such a little amount of time? Do you remember what I told you last week, the Lord, how he answered that for me? Three words. No wasted time. This is how Jesus did it. No wasted time. How are you going to finish the work? How are you going to make an impact? How are you going to find, follow, and fulfill the will of God for your life fully so that you can stand before him on day one in eternity and say, I finished? Same way. No wasted time. Jesus evidently understood something about time that I think you and I need to understand better. He understood the value of time. He saw time accurately. Whereas to us, a year, 10 years, 50 or 100 years feels like such a long time. You got to remember, he had an eternal perspective of it. And what is 100 years when you put it on the timeline of all of eternity past and all of eternity future? You know what it is? It's a vapor. It's a puff of smoke here for a little bit of time, and then it's gone. And Jesus had an eternal perspective of time, which means he knew how little time he had to get the job done. And when you understand that, you quit wasting time. You quit killing time. Jesus understood time. Go with me to the book of Ephesians. And you can hold your place in John 4. We're going to come back to it. Ephesians chapter 5. And look at verse 15. Ephesians 5.15 says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Now listen to it from the Amplified Bible. The classic edition says it like this. Look carefully then how you walk. Are we supposed to be paying attention to how we're walking through this life? Are we supposed to just be fumbling and bumbling around or should we be paying attention to every step that we're taking? 
He says, walk circumspectly, which means look carefully at how you walk. Now listen to this. He says, live purposefully and worthily and accurately. Listen to these words again. Purposefully, worthily, and accurately. Do you think that's a good description of the way Jesus walked this earth? Did he walk with purpose? Oh, we we know he did. We've already answered that. He's already said it. I'm not come to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. There's his purpose. And to finish the work. There's his purpose. He's living purposefully. He's living worthily. The, The scriptures talk to us about walking worthy of the call that's on your life. There's a call upon every one of us, but not every one of us and not all those in the world are living lives worthy of that calling. Jesus is a perfect example of what it looks like to live in a manner worthy of the call of God on your life. Did he live worthy of it? Yes, he did. Did he live accurately? I love this word. This has to do with precision. Jesus lived with such precision This is why I say to you, he woke up every day with this on his mind. What's the will of God for this day? What's the will of God for this moment? How do I finish the work in this moment? So much so that he could sit down by a well, completely exhausted, totally worn out from the journey. So much that he couldn't even take another step to go get a bite to eat. And yet when this woman came up, he was so yielded to the plan and will of God for his life that he said to that tired, weary flesh, shut up, we got a job to do. And he begins getting into this conversation with this woman and he sees beyond this woman, not just to her salvation, but to the salvation of an entire city. And when he, when he yielded to that and gave over to that, it so energized him that his disciples came back and said, did somebody give this guy something to eat? He's like, I got food you don't know about. I got something else sustaining me. I got something else energizing me. I've got something else strengthening me. And I got something else satisfying me. Ministering to her was as satisfying to him as Thanksgiving meal was to some of you a couple of weeks ago. It so satisfied him, put such a big happy smile on his face, glory to God. Why? It's another step in finishing the work. Another step in obedience to the will and plan of God. We're told here we're supposed to be walking circumspectly. We're supposed to be paying attention to the way we walk and we are supposed to be redeeming the time. Look at it one more time. See then you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wives, redeeming the time. The Amplified Classic, again, look carefully then how you walk. Live purposefully, worthily, accurately, not as the unwise. Do you hear how wisdom keeps coming up in this? Not as the unwise and witless, but as wise, sensible, intelligent people. Do you mind if I go ahead and make that confession over you, church, this morning? That you're a bunch of wise, sensible, intelligent people. That was a great place to shout amen. That's who and what you are, wise people, sensible people, intelligent people. Somebody say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Pastor. And this is what sensible, intelligent people do. They make the very most... Of the time. Do you hear this? Are you paying attention? They make the very most of the time. How do you do that? By buying up each opportunity. Buying up opportunity. He says some of these same things in Colossians chapter 4, verse 5. Don't turn there, just listen. It says, Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. What are we supposed to be doing with time? We're supposed to be redeeming it. Now this word redeem is the exact same word that shows up in the book of Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 that says Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. It's a word that means literally to buy back, to make a, a financial exchange in purchase of something. To redeem it is to buy it. But it's more than just buying it. It's buying it with the motive of saving it. 
saving it from loss. It's the same word in the Greek language used to talk about buying a slave. But not buying a slave so that you can enslave them. Buying a slave so that you can free them. That's the word redemption. Were we enslaved? Yes, we were. Enslaved to sin, enslaved to darkness, enslaved to depression and oppression. But glory to God, we've been redeemed. Somebody say, I've been redeemed. That means you've been bought. You've been bought back, but he didn't buy you to enslave you. He bought you to free you, to free you and I from loss. And this is the word that he used to describe what we should be doing with time. We should be buying it. We should be saving time from loss. What we should be doing is learning to see time the way God sees time. Walking circumspectly, paying attention to how we're walking. And did you notice this, that in both of those verses, redeeming the time was connected to wisdom? He told us, walk as wise. Remember, sensible, intelligent. That's you. That's me. That's us. But one of the key characteristics, pay attention to me, one of the key characteristics of a wise person is how they handle time. Are you listening? One of the, one of the key things in identifying wisdom in another person or even in yourself is how they handle time. If you know a wise person handles time correctly, what's that tell you about a fool? The fool. The fool doesn't understand some things about time. The fool is the one who thinks time's just unlimited. A wise person understands how precious time is. There's a couple of things I believe you and I need to leave here today with an understanding of time. Some, some very key understandings when it comes to time. Number one, we need to understand time is a gift. Time is a gift. The fool doesn't understand that. The fool thinks time is owed to them. The fool thinks that time is a guarantee. A wise person understands time is a gift. Can you say that? Time is a gift. Not only is it a gift, it is one of the greatest gifts God has ever given mankind. Time. Because time, just as we read in Ephesians 5, Colossians 4, has to do with opportunity. Time is opportunity. And the very most that God could ever do for you or me or any of us in His great love for us is give us opportunity. You would think that God with all His power, if He was going to make you do something, He would make you be born again. He would make you believe in Jesus. He would make you give your life over to Him. But He didn't make you do any of that. He just created opportunity. He just gave you Jesus, said, I love you, and gave you opportunity to love Him back. Time. You need to understand time's a gift. It's a gift from God because time is mercy. You ever heard the phrase time is money? It's more than money. It's mercy. You remember when God told a man named Jonah? He said, I got a job for you. I want you to go to Nineveh, that great and wicked city, and declare against it and tell them that judgment's coming. This was this man's job. Now, you understand some things about Nineveh, right? I mean, it was, it was one of, if not the most wicked, violent, vile city on earth, maybe, at that time. So godless. Who knows what all was going, in that, going on in that place? And God called this man with a word and said, you go preach against that city. Well, you know the whole story. He ran from God, or, you know, tried. 
got on a boat, went down to the bottom of the boat, trying to hide down there. And he looks up and God's like, hey, what's up? Like, what are you doing here? And he's trying to hide from God, trying to run from God. The storm shows up on the sea. He tells the guys, throw me over, the storm will stop. This was not a noble deed. This man's trying to commit suicide. He'd rather kill himself in that storm out on that sea than be obedient to finish this work. So he, they throw him in and the, sea, the, the storm sh- stops and that great fish that God prepared to swallow Jonah came and Jonah's in the belly of that fish and he looks over and God's like, hey, what's up? <laughs> can't run, can't run. So finally he says, okay. Actually, the Bible says three days later. That's, that is a new level of stubborn. After three days in the belly of a fish, you're like, okay, fine, I'll go. How long would it take you, huh? You might be surprised. But you know the story, the, the, the fish vomits him up on dry land and he goes to Nineveh. But do you remember what the word of the Lord was to that city? That the word of the Lord was repent. If you don't repent in 40 days, judgment's coming. 40 days? What is that? It's time. It's opportunity, it's mercy, it's mercy. Because God could have said, go tell them I'm about to rain fire all over them, end of story. But he didn't. He said, you tell them they've got some time. Time is opportunity, it's opportunity to repent. It's opportunity to get some things right, man. It's opportunity to, t- to say to the Lord, I'm done doing my thing. I'm done being God. I'm done being Lord. Jesus, you be Lord. He's so gracious to give us time. Jesus told a parable about uh, a man who was so over his head in debt that the one he owed all the money to, 10,000 talents, which is like multiple lifetimes of debt. This one said, okay, I'm going to take you and put you in bondage and sell everything you have and, and sell you and I'm going to pay this debt. And you know what the guy said? He said, be patient with me. One translation says, my Lord, just give me time. Give me time. And Jesus in this parable showed the same character of God that you see in the book of Jonah. He gave him the time. And when this guy asked for time, the compassion of the Lord rose up in that, in that master and he forgave him the debt. Time is opportunity. Time is mercy. Time is a gift. Time's valuable. And I don't think we have lived with enough value placed on our time. Not the way he places value on it. How do I know it's valuable? Anything that is rare is valuable. This is how value gets ascribed to many things. It's precious. It's rare. In other words, there's not just a lot of it out there. You might think, well, you know, we, there's a lot of time. Yes and no. This moment we're in right now will never be again. Never again. Will we have that moment that was right then? So from that sense, time is it's precious. It's valuable. And wise people understand that. They get that. Wise people understand, are you ready for this? Their time is more valuable than their money. Now, not a lot of people understand that. How do I know? Because most people would gladly spend time to save money. Think about that. Most people would rather spend the time if it saved them the money. In other words, they'd drive 12 miles out of their way to save three cents a gallon on gas. Why? Because the time doesn't mean anything to them. I got to save me that money though. But ask yourself this. Has anybody ever died with money left? Yeah, it's happening every day. Has anybody ever died with time left? Nobody. Oh, lots of people died with a lot of money left over. But nobody has ever died with any time left. 
That means to me, your time is more valuable than your money. And if you'll learn this, if you'll put this into practice, if you will learn to value your time more than your money, you know what's going to happen? You'll make more money. Because you're valuing what God values. Time is precious. Time is valuable. This is what people don't understand about things like like private airplanes. And I'm saying this from the perspective of somebody, we've owned two separate airplanes in the past. And man, nothing gets somebody fired up more than preachers and airplanes. Have you noticed this? Man, you want to get somebody all fired up and opinionated and you just mentioned preachers and airplanes. But what they're revealing in that is that to them, money's more valuable than time. These airplanes, I'll say it for us from, from our personal experience, they're more than airplanes. They're time machines. There's actually a study, I read this study and it was in a private aviation magazine and they had done a study on people in their businesses whose professions required them to travel full-time. They were constantly in other places across the United States, places around the world. And what they found out about people who traveled full-time and those who did it privately in their own airplane, they saved, you ready for this? 21 days a year. 21 days a year. Now what happens if you take 21 days a year and you multiply that over a career, huh? Over 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. That adds up. And people who make the investment in, in pieces of equipment like this, whether it's airplanes or things like that, these are people who value their time more than their money. There's a reason they're rich. There's a reason they have a lot of money. It's because they value time more. So next time you're around somebody that gets all fired up about preachers and airplanes, you don't got to say anything, but just know in the back of your mind what they have revealed is that nothing is more valuable to them than money. And that's not the right way to think. Time is. Time's more precious. Why? It's a gift. It's an opportunity. And if we will spend it right... This ought to be the big goal that we wake up with every day. I'm not now, you can see where we're, we're no longer talking about finishing a year. We're talking about finishing life and how we wake up every single day. We're motivated with no wasted time. Amen. This thought occurred to me. You remember what Jesus said in John chapter 10? Verse 10, the thief comes to do what? Steal. Steal, kill, and to destroy. Jesus said, I came that you'd have life and have it more abundantly. Wise people are not the only ones who know how valuable time is. Guess who else knows how valuable time is? The thief. And a good thief, which is kind of a funny thing to say, but a thief who's good at stealing, have you noticed this? They don't steal junk. They steal things that are of value. Now, bad thieves, they'll steal anything they can get their hands on, only to find out later it ain't worth nothing to begin with. But I'm going to tell you something about your enemy and mine, Satan, the devil. He's been stealing from mankind for a long time. And when it comes to stealing, He's good at it. I said he's good at it. He knows what's valuable. You ever been stolen from? And I don't mean by the devil, of course, that's connected to that. But I mean just in, in anything. You ever been stolen from? This, isn't, this has not happened to us very much in our lives. But the time or two that it has, I figured out there is, there is no more frustrating feeling than having been stolen from. I mean, you just feel violated. We experienced this years ago. Somebody got a hold of our debit card. And I got a notification from the, the bank at the time. And this person 
tried to buy, I think, maybe some prepaid phone cards or some, some little micro SD cards at Walmart. And I think they put maybe a hundred bucks on our card. Made me so mad. I'm on the phone with the bank. You know what I'm saying? Who was it? I want to know who it was. Where are they? Did they catch them? And if you've ever been stolen from, if that's ever happened to you with your card, your credit card, you know, you're never going to get any of that information. But if you're like me, you will lay awake that night and the next six dreaming up ways to track that sucker down. How dare you? That's my money. How dare you try to steal from me? Anybody else ever been stolen from? We had something happen at the church before we even opened the doors. Part of the uh, inspection of the building called for us to get a new roof. So there was insurance money that came for us to get this new roof. Well, there was a lot going on, as you can imagine. We're building this place out. We got work going on all over the place, and we hired a contractor, only to find out a few days, a few weeks later, nobody has seen this guy. Nobody has heard from this guy. And he ran away with tens of thousands of our dollars. And I remember thinking, where is he? Where's he at? Right? Can somebody tell me where he's at? Well, there's not a lot we can do to track it. I'll track him down. Where is he? You in Mexico, brother? I'm coming for you right now. It's that, that feeling of being violated. You took what was mine. How dare you? And especially when somebody takes something that's of real value, when somebody gets a hold of something that's actually worth something and they steal it from you, there's no feeling like that. Satan is a thief. And he is after what is most valuable. Which means what? He's coming for your what? Your time. He's a time thief. He's a time thief. And one of the things I'm asking you to do, and it's what I'm asking of myself in the coming year, people make their New Year's resolutions. You can call them whatever you want. I'm making a change in the way I live my life. I am going to be catching, arresting, and imprisoning every time thief in my life. Amen. And we could make a long list, couldn't we, of the things that attempt to rob us of our time. And it wouldn't take long. The flesh itself is a time thief, making all these demands. But I want this, and I want that, and let's go here, and I want this. And you find out so often, too often, when you're constantly giving into that, you find out at the end of the day, that was such a waste of time. Do you know that there are some thoughts that are total time thieves? Worry is a time thief. Fear is a time thief. Have you ever worried and worried and worried and worried over something only to find out days or weeks later there was nothing to worry about? Well, what happened to that time? It's gone. The time thief came and took it. Worry is a time thief. Fear is a time thief. The flesh is a time thief. Let me center in, though, on this one last thing. And I saw this in the last 24 hours, and I've never seen it before. Did you hold your place in John 4? Go right back to where we left off and check this out. What was the last thing we heard Jesus say? John chapter 4. Verse 34, he said, my food, my nourishment, what sustains, strengthens, energizes, and satisfies me is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Verse 35, Jesus said to his disciples, do you not say there are still four months And then comes the harvest. And I got to be honest with you. My entire life until yesterday. I read that verse. And when I read the words, what I heard was Jesus say to them, 
do not say this. But what did he say? Do you not say this? Say what? Well, there's still three months. Wasn't it three? Is that what he said? Four? There's still four months and then comes the harvest. I started doing some digging around. One translation says it like this. Jesus said to them, don't you have a saying that goes, oh, there's still four months and then comes the harvest. He wasn't saying, don't say that. He was asking the question, don't, don't you say this? There's still four months and then comes the harvest. Did a little research into this and found out it was a, it was a saying. It was an expression. We have sayings. We have expressions. Something that's, that had its origin in, in something, but it, but it just kind of hung around and people started using it for other things. And maybe somebody one day actually said, after they had done all the sowing, maybe they actually said, okay, four months till the harvest. And it meant I can take a break. I don't got to do any work right now. But what it actually became was this saying that people said was like, well, hey, you know, four months till the harvest. It was sort of like somebody saying, why do today what you can put off till tomorrow? (laughs) This is what this saying was. Still four months till the harvest. Still four months till the harvest. And it was what people would say when they were putting something off. Still four months. It made me think of high school. And every year when that grade year was over, the teachers would assign us summer reading. Anybody else have summer reading? That's just cruelty. Can we be honest? That's just cruelty. Summer, homework over the summer. But I did the same thing every year with summer reading. The first thing I do when I get that book is I look at the end of it and I see how many pages are in the book. Okay, 350 pages in this book. I got three months of summer and 90 days. I can read this many pages a day. And if I'll do that, I'll be done by the end of the summer. Great plan, right? Only problem is day goes by. And have I read any pages? No. Three days goes by. Six days goes by. Two weeks goes by. Have I read any pages? No. All I'm doing is updating my math. Okay. So now we have 75 days. And if I read this many pages a day, oh, I'll be done by the summer. I'll be done by the end and when school starts. And I would do this for the first month of summer, for the second month. Don't you look at me like that? (laughs) Sitting there all holy looking. You know exactly what I'm talking about. What am I saying? Oh, four months till the harvest. Four months till the harvest. Procrastinating. And putting it off and putting it off and putting it off and putting it off until there's about eight days of summer left and I'm doing the math. 350 pages divided by eight days. That's a lot of, I'm gonna have to eat, sleep, and dream this book now till school starts. And it's funny when you're young. What's not funny is when we fail to put away that childish mentality and we still live every day like this, four months till the harvest, there's time, whatever. Four months, and you just keep putting it off and you just keep putting it off and you just keep putting it off. And I love that Jesus said it like this to his disciples. Don't you have a saying? He's a Jewish boy, just like they're Jewish boys. He grew up in the same cities, the same town. What's he saying? He's saying, we don't talk like this in heaven. There's a breakdown in communication here. Have you ever, you ever heard somebody from, a, from another country try to speak our language and we don't, we don't have all the same phrases and we don't have all, it is, um, um, how do you say in your English language? And they're looking for the way to express it. This is what Jesus is saying. Don't you, don't you guys have a saying about this? How does your saying go? Oh, there's still four months to the harvest. There's still four months to the harvest. And what did he say? He said it in verse 35. Behold. I say to you, lift up your eyes and look to the fields, for they are already white with harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers. He says he gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true. 
He said, this is y'all saying, this is my saying. One sows, another reaps. They're working. They're getting the job done. And he said in verse 38, I sent you to reap. To reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you enter into their labors. What did he say? Lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes. So evidently, their eyes were not up and lifted. That means they're like this. And we even, talking about our sayings, you ever heard this one? Sometimes you just got to put your head down and go to work. Just put your head down. I know it's rough. I know it's tough. But you know what? In 28 years, you'll be retired. So here's what you do. Every day till then, put your head down and you go to work and you clock in and you do the job. You don't got to do any more than they ask of you. Just do the job. You don't got to do any more than they're paying you to do. Am I right? Am I right? <laughs> and you clock out and you get your head down and you get in the car and you drive home and you get home and you pay some bills and you hang out with the kids and you eat some dinner. You put them to bed, you go to bed and then you get up and you put your head down and you go to work and you clock in and you clock out and you go home and you mow the yard and then you pay the bills and you hang out with the kids. And then you go to bed and you get up and just do that for about 30 years. What is that? Head down, head down, head down. You know what you never see with your head down? Opportunity. They will all pass you by. And why'd you miss it? Because your head was down. What am I seeing right now? Me. Me. Nothing but me. And yeah, I got these dreams. And yeah, yeah you know, I got a sense that maybe... Maybe God's called me to do something. Maybe, maybe God wants me over there in that church or maybe he wants me serving in that church. Well, well, you know, you know what they say, four months till the harvest. What's that? That's the way a fool talks. Oh, I got time. Do you? You don't know. Do you? The wise person lifts up their head, looks to the field, why? Because the harvest is ripe right now. And Jesus said, I have sent you to reap. I've sent you out there to reap. What is reaping? Finishing the work. Ministering to not just those of us who are here, but those of us who are yet to be here. Folks, we got people right outside these doors dying, starving to death for purpose, for clarity, for vision. The fields are white. Go reap. Go reap. And you'll never do any of it. You'll never even see the opportunity to reap with your head down. And the cool thing was that Jesus said, he who reaps receives wages and gets eternal life. So reaping, doing the work, doing the job here, it pays good. You and I receive wages for doing it. And on top of the wages we receive here in this life, guess what else we get? Eternal life in the life to come. Amen? Amen. If we'll learn to see our time as valuable, precious. And this is what I believe the Lord wanted to say to us today. And I'll wrap it up with this. It's one thing for your house to be broken into while you weren't there. And you come home and you find a door kicked in. You find stuff gone and... What a sick feeling that is. The only thing worse is to be in the house when the thief knocks on the door and you say, come on in. Take what you want. What is that? Procrastination. Procrastination is a thief of your, t- is, is, is a thief of your time, but he didn't steal it from you. You gave it to him just handed it over when you said, I'll get to that later. Yeah, I know. Lord, I I hear you. I know there's some things you want me to do. I'll get to that later. What what are you doing? Handing your precious, valuable time to the thief. Saying, here, you take it. I believe I'm looking at some wise people. Not a room full of fools, a room full of wise, sensible, intelligent people. Another good place to shout amen, church. Come on, stand on your feet with me. Let's thank the Lord for this today. If we're wise people, we value our time. And here's the good news. And this is good news to me as much or more as it is to you or anybody else. 
we can redeem it. If we have lost it, if there is some time we've given away to the thief, we can buy it back. We can act on faith and in faith right now and buy back some of that time. Buy back some of those opportunities. And I'm declaring it in 2023 and beyond. The thief is not getting any more of my time. He's not getting any more of my time through unfruitful conversation with people who don't value time, with people who just want to eat it up and spit it out, who don't have any value for your time or mine. He's not stealing from me with that anymore. Glory to God. He's not stealing from me through the flesh. He's not stealing from me through worry. He's not stealing my time through fear. And I'm determined in Jesus' name, I'm not handing over any more of my time. I'm a wise man. I'm a wise husband. I'm a wise father. I'm a wise pastor. And if we're missing any of this wisdom, here's the great news. It's so simple to get it. What did the scripture say? How do you get wisdom? Ask. So can we do it right now? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Lift up your hands. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We hope you enjoyed this message. If you need someone to pray with you, there are several ways for you to contact us. Feel free to give us a call at 817-577-0180. You can also contact us through the Legacy Studios app or either of our websites. Giving options are available online at pearsonsministries.com and legacychurch.family. If you prefer, you can also text an offering. Simply text LEGACY in any dollar amount to the number 28950 and follow the prompts. Be blessed today. We love you and remember... You are always welcome here in the House of Faith.